I'll invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 4. If you're using uh, one of the church's Bibles uh, found in the pews in front of you, uh, turn to page 630. Jeremiah is one of the uh, major prophets. Right after Isaiah. To get us started this morning, we're going to read chapter 4, verses 5 through 8 and 11 through 18. Beloved saints, this is your God's word to you this morning. Please give your attention uh, to the reading of it. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise the standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and a great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And just drop down a couple of verses, if you will, to verses, verse 11 through 18. At that time it will be said to the people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout out against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around. Because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. So ends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us pray that our God would meet us in his word. Our gracious God, you know our fickle hearts. You know that we fear the truth as much as we desire it, that we're as likely to run from it as we are to it. You know that we can suppress your glorious truth without a second thought. And so our confidence as we draw near to your word is that you are greater than our fears, that you are not constrained by our sin, that your word gives freedom to those who are in bondage. May we now not just believe these things, but may we witness these things as you open your word to us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever heard someone say, 
Well, I guess he just has to learn the hard way. It's usually a parent who says this, probably why the parents here are snickering. But the point is always the same. The person who says this is really saying something like this. I've tried everything. I've talked till I'm blue in the face. I've warned about all the dangers. I've given alternatives. I've offered to help in every way I can possibly think of. But I've been ignored. I've made no progress. He just seems dead set on pursuing a path that can only end badly. There's nothing more I can do. The only way he'll learn is by failing, by getting hurt the hard way. And it's not that the parent delights in the pain that is sure to come. It's not that the parent's unwilling to help. It's just that he's out of ideas. And all he can hope for now is that there might be some redeeming benefit to the pain that is sure to come. Maybe, maybe the child will finally learn. Maybe all the pain that has come won't be for nothing. Maybe all hope isn't lost. Sometimes the best thing a parent can do for a child is to let that child fail with the hope that the lesson will be learned. But have you ever noticed how hard that is for a younger sibling to understand? Younger siblings love to rebuke parents at this point. You're just going to let him go? Aren't you going to stop him? Because it takes a unique perspective. It, it, it takes experience. It takes wisdom. And it takes a faith and trust that letting go is sometimes the way you hold on to someone. And this is really what the next few chapters of Jeremiah are about. Chapter 2, we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, looked at Israel's uh, sin, their history of sin, actually centuries of sin and rebellion, and the lies that they had believed and the lies that they had told. Chapter 3 was really... Uh, a, a tender call for, for God's children to turn from their sin and to repent, even with a helpful description of, of what true repentance actually looks like. But chapters 4 through 12 take a turn because they are messages of judgment against that southern kingdom. Remember the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, which are known as Judah. And, and I'm not going to deal with these... Uh, eight or nine chapters in exhaustive detail. Uh, Today we want to look at chapters four, five, and six. And and really what I want to do, hopefully you read these in advance and you notice certain themes and, and things getting repeated over and over. And I simply want to draw out this morning four, uh, a few, a few themes that are repeated in different ways. Uh, first, we want to see God's announcement that the time for judgment has come. Once we've seen that, then we want to look at the prophet Jeremiah's confusion over God's decision to bring disaster upon uh, his people, sort of like that younger sibling who can't believe it. 
And then finally, we want to see through all the details to the bigger picture so that we might understand through all of this God's reasons, his goals, but ultimately so that we might understand his heart. That's really what we want to understand is God's purpose and his heart in all of this. Because we need to remember that God is a loving heavenly father and that all he does, he does for our good. Romans 8 tells us that. And perhaps uh, we'll be able to see that this morning as we look at these quite frankly heavy passages uh, in Jeremiah. It's a repeated theme in all three chapters, but it's this. Judgment is coming. God has warned them. He's called them to repent. He's invited a change of course. And that invitation has gone unheeded. They have ignored him. And his patience has run out. And he's about to send judgment on his people, the likes of which they have never seen. It's going to come, we're told, from the north. Enemies will come in, he says, like a lion, which is a terrifying image. They will invade and they will devour the land. That beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, built up and established over centuries, he says in chapter 4, verses 23 through 28, will become formless and void. Is that a familiar phrase? That's what the earth was before creation. It's like they will watch everything, all of creation, be undone before their eyes. And years of hard work, farming, construction will be erased in a moment. And all of this is because the people have become comfortable with their sin. God even says in chapter 4, verse 22 that they have become wise in doing evil. How's that for a turn of phrase? You've become brilliant, well-crafted, practiced in doing wickedness. At cheating, lying, and oppressing. They've, they've lined their pockets on the backs of the poor. And they're absolutely comfortable with their immorality. They don't even give it a second thought. They've been safe and prosperous for so many years that those days of struggling are a distant memory. And they've just grown complacent, indifferent toward God. And you know how easy this is. When things are hard, when we failed, we become conscientious and we we tried really hard. We put our best effort in. We're careful with our words. We put in uh, extra uh, effort into all of our things. We, We are more likely to serve others, care for them, listen. But when things calm down, get back to normal, what do we do? We start to indulge our selfishness. We, we become careless with our words, our, our actions. We mistreat others, even those we love. This is Israel in the days of the prophet Jeremiah. They have become lazy and they have become careless. 
They have become so deaf to God's word that they're not even capable of hearing his voice anymore. See, the judgment he's warning of is still in the future. But as they look around, everything seems fine. It's like Noah ranting about the flood when there's not a cloud in the sky. Everybody thinks you're a madman. Jeremiah, you just you won't be happy unless the sky is falling. They should be running for the hills. They should be going uh, uh, for safety, but they're living as if everything is fine. And part of the problem is that there are other prophets besides Jeremiah declaring that everything is fine and there are no dangers looming. According to chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, the prophets are yelling, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You're okay, everything's good. But God doesn't let the people off the hook because they're complicit in this. Because they have surrounded themselves with false prophets who will tell them whatever they want to hear. How much does that sound like the church today? How many pastors tell their congregations just what they want to hear? How many churches are packed to overflowing because they proclaim that everything is great and God just wants them to be richer, more comfortable, better? You add to the list. Such preaching is rewarded with those who prefer comfort to truth. And we are not immune. How easy is it for you to surround yourself with those who tell you what you want to hear? Do you ever push people away who who say things that make you uncomfortable? Do you snap at them when they do so they'll learn to stop doing that? Do you insulate yourself from correction? And then when everything goes sideways, you cry out, why didn't anyone warn me? Look what God says in chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me? Do you not tremble before me? You see, if you surround yourself with people who only tell you what you want to hear, you will become deaf and blind to the truth. You'll have eyes and they'll do you no benefit, ears and they'll do you no no good, and you will share in the blame. If God's message of judgment feels like a bit much to take in, if it feels a little bit like overkill, you're not alone, Jeremiah struggles himself with this message. I told you when we started this book that this book is as much about the life of Jeremiah as it is about the message he preaches. His life is incorporated more into this book than any other prophet. Uh, If you look at chapter 4, verse 10, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. 
Jeremiah looks at the false prophets and he says, God, you've deceived the people. They're just listening to their leaders. It's not the people's fault. Jeremiah sees this message he's been called to proclaim and he's struggling. You want me to go in now and tell them the opposite of what they've been hearing? And it's not just an intellectual challenge to God's method and ways. Look at chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. For I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste. My curtains in a moment. Jeremiah is in anguish. He feels like his world is crashing down around him. Everything he knows is changing. An entire way of existence is coming to an end. And it it pains him and it scares him. And Jeremiah is a prophet. Set aside from the womb to this purpose, called, chosen to this holy uh, calling. And if you ever struggle with God's ways, if you've ever been tempted to think that He's heavy handed and harsh, you're not alone. Jeremiah's pretty good company to be in, and he himself was there. God could have simply said to Jeremiah, How dare you question me? But he doesn't. He he takes Jeremiah by the hand and he gives him his reasons. He explains it to him. Chapter 4, verse 18. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. Reached your very heart. God says, this isn't random. This isn't arbitrary. It's not sudden. It's a response to your rebellion. And then he challenges Jeremiah in chapter 5, verse 1. Run to and fro, Jeremiah, through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares and see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. By her, he means all of Jerusalem. Find me one person and I'll pardon the whole city. Over the next few verses in a section that is eerily reminiscent of his discussion with Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, God notes the complete absence of righteousness in Jerusalem. If, there was, if this was any other nation in the world, Jeremiah would be looking and saying, God, how can you not judge them? And God knows this, and he, and he simply asks, Shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? You know the temptation that Jeremiah faces, what he wants to say. He wants to say, God, but that's not fair. And God's response is, fair? You want fair? I don't think you do. And then we all know where we head when the fairness route doesn't work. Okay, well, maybe it's not unfair, but but certainly it's unloving. 
as if love always means protecting people from the consequence of their decisions. And you know how easy this is, how quickly we make demands of God in, in the emotion of the moment. We'll say something like this, I just want to be more like Jesus. God, make me more like Jesus. And you know what follows? Hard times because we grow through pain and struggles and hard times. And so what do we say next? God, why did you let everything fall apart? Would you just leave me alone? But is that ever a good prayer? Do we ever want God to just leave us alone? But that's exactly what his people have been asking for for centuries. And really, that's what he's doing in our passage. He's removing his protective hand. He's saying, you want me to leave you alone? You've got it. You want me to stop meddling and messing with everything? I don't think you do, but we'll give it a shot. Part of God's judgment is simply giving them over to their desires. In fact, sometimes the worst judgment God could ever inflict on us is giving us what we want. And that's what he's telling Jeremiah. He's pursued Israel for years. He's protected them in spite of themselves. All they have done is blame him for everything and tell him to leave them alone. And they're about to get what they asked for. You think you could stand against Assyria, that mighty nation, if I'm not guarding your borders? But if we're going to understand God's heart, we need to see through all of what he says. We need to listen to everything we find in these passages. A repeating refrain throughout this passage is this, but I will not make a full end of you. Chapter 4, verse 27. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 18. The judgment he's warning them of is not complete destruction. Even in handing them over to their sin, there is still a restraining hand involved. And this is where God reveals his heart to us. You see, if his goal was simply to destroy them, that is what he'd do. He would bring total destruction upon the Jews and they would be removed from memory. They would cease to exist. There would be no Israel. You'd have no Jewish friends. They would have been removed from the face of the earth. That was his desire. But that's not what he does, and I think we know why. Because he loves his people. You see, Jeremiah's anguish over his people is simply a reflection of God's anguish. In fact, God's anguish is greater. As as scared as as Jeremiah thinks he is, as, as troubled as he is, he doesn't begin to understand how much God's love is towards his people. God's revealing himself through the prophet. 
He wants his people to repent and to be saved. Their suffering grieves him. But sometimes the only way to salvation is through judgment. Sometimes the only way is the hard way. Because God has learned, or God knows what every good parent learns. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for your child is stop protecting them from the consequences of their foolishness. Sometimes the only way to help them in the long run is to stop helping them in the short run. Sometimes we just have to fall on our face before we look for help. And so God's teaching them to despair of their own wisdom and to look for help. Chapter 4, verse 14. God says this, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? God's plan, his goal, is always to help us see clearly and to look to him for help. But let's be honest. The reality is most of us learn the hard way. Look back over your life. How many times has God allowed hard times to come into your life but not destroyed you? At the time, what did you think? How did you respond? Did you accuse him of indifference or unkindness? But what have you gained with time and perspective? Have you been able to see how he was shaping you? Have you learned to see past the situation and to recognize a God of inexhaustible patience? Have you come to appreciate his willingness to let you fall in order to help you grow? God's character and how he uses apparent failure for eventual success is most clearly seen in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross was not just the hard way, it was the hardest way. The greatest pain a man has ever known or ever will in this creation. When you read of the suffering that Jesus went through, when you see the way the people in Jerusalem treated him, deaf and blind to his warnings, indifferent to his love, when you see the lies that were spread about him, the, the, the travesty of justice in his trial, the outright hostility in demanding his life, when you look at not just the, the death sentence uh, uh, rendered on him, but the horrific way in which it was carried out, the whipping, the mockery, the beating, agony of the crucifixion. When you hear his prayer the night before, Father, if there's any way, spare me. When you read the account, it's hard in the midst of it to see the Father's love. It's hard to make sense out of it. It's easy to say unfair, unkind, unloving. But when you understand that there's no salvation, there's no mercy, there's no hope, without the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, no heaven, no eternity. When you see the end game, the big picture, 
when you realize that God is not afraid of walking down hard roads if they serve a greater end. That the father let his son go through the hardest pain, not because he needed to learn something, but because it was the only way to save and rescue us. When you realize that he lets us go through hard times in order to see our need for Jesus, it's the same pattern. It should not surprise us that God, the God who brought salvation through death, would allow us to go through seasons of destruction in order for us to see our need for help. And just as the death of Jesus gave way to the resurrection, we're reminded that the destruction God will allow in our lives is never ultimate, never complete, but always has new life in sight. To help that sink in, to drive it home. God has set before you a visible reminder of the way of salvation, which was the hardest way. The bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper are visible reminders of the body and blood of Jesus given up in death to save us. This was not the easy way. It was not the way of comfort. It wasn't popular with God's people, but it was life. It was the only way. The use of bread and wine remind us that we don't have Jesus' physical body. Because on the third day, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and he's waiting for us in glory. And so when destruction comes to God's children, it cannot win. It cannot be complete. Death must always give way to life. The grave must yield to the resurrection. So in the hard days, when it appears that God has withdrawn his loving hand of protection, this is what you need to remember. It is love, not indifference, that drives a parent to let you learn the hard way. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift from our God this morning. And please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know us, and you know what is best for us. You know how we beg you to let us be, and then we find fault with you when you do. You know how we turn a deaf ear to your warnings and then ask why no one warned us. You know us. And you know that sometimes we need to learn the hard way. You know that the best thing you can do for us is nothing. You know that we need to see the futility of our ways so that we might be humbled and come back. We thank you that when you allow destruction to come, that it is not complete. Help us to learn quickly and teach us to run to you, we pray. Amen.